So a few weeks ago, many of you know that we cast the vision for this City Lights initiative. And, you know, this, this idea of a vision of a, of a church without walls, decentralized, building community on a public social level around the cities in which we will live, the communities in which we live. And I shared that, and two weekends of that, and every Monday I have a I feel so stupid, period. <laughs> like, what did I just do? And Christy and Mike, her late husband, we, we go back to 1994. 1994. We're not that old, really. Yeah, we were 12 then. <laughs> I think And so, um, so Christy, uh, who is on staff now at Christ United Methodist here in town, and I get a text from you. Mm-hmm. And here's what that text said from someone that I respect so deeply. And I want you to unpack this. Okay, yeah. Good morning, Charlie. This is Christy. I had to reach out to say, wow, this City Lights initiative is crazy good. This is actually the wave of ministry for this postmodern America. Perfect solution. Brilliant. Exclamation points, exclamation points. It's basically the way Abby, Christy's daughter, and her husband, Jared, have been doing ministry in Germany. They've been living in Germany for the last few years. I'm praying for the right people to direct this movement. You are quite the visionary, and this is one, if not the best kingdom-building move you have led, which I needed to hear that. I'd love to say yes. that, oh, I didn't yes. hear that. I already knew this is, yeah. I mean, this is going to work. <laughs> but to hear that from you, I just yeah. respect your perspective yeah. on kingdom mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm. And as a sister, you go, brother. I'm, I'm sure many other churches will follow your lead. You're building emergency right. rooms on the edge of hell. Yes. And yes. that's why we're doing this is because society's not working. We can't just reactively care for people. We have to create proactive communities where connection is made. So what's behind that? That's the first part of this text exchange we had that day. So for you, as a pastor, as someone who has a passion for the kingdom, community, connection, what's behind that? And and a missionary daughter, by the way, in Germany. Yes. Well, the world's changing, and I think the church has to change with it. We cannot be reactive on this. We have to be proactive. The original diagram for the church was to be a force, a movement that would change culture. First of all, starting with the individual heart, the soul, affecting that person. So Jesus would go and have a conversation by a well, or he'd say, Zacchaeus, I'm going home with you. He would go, and I think almost the church has gotten a little behind the ball here with being more, I don't want to use the word lazy, but let's really be careful about it because we could come across as lazy. We want them to come to us. And Jesus, you're not that crazy. Jesus said, go into all the world. So this is echoing what he originally said as the mission for the church was to go. So us expecting them to leave their comfort zone to come to us when they don't know what kind of music we're going to sing, are they going to have snakes? Are they? Exactly. It's totally, it's very foreign to them. The average believer now, if you say you're an attender or you're a member of a church, comes one to two times in a six-week period. So once a month or twice in three months, we can't, no matter how good our programming is, no matter how good our messaging is, our children's programming, we can't effectively transform lives in that one hour. So we have to be thinking about that next initiative. How are we going to do this? And, and think, think about, this does it. yeah, and, and this, you know, in the 90s, we're thinking about small groups, getting everybody into small groups where people don't, 
they just can't come to the building. They can't come to houses as much anymore. We have to come into those events that they're already participating. Yes. So I sent that the text back to you, and here was the exchange. You said that, and I said, you're the best. All I can say is Philippians 1.3. I thank God every time I remember you. Your words encourage me deeply. As with most initiatives, those are, there are those who think I'm crazy, and they may be right. And that's, there is, there, they are right to some extent. And you said something back to me that I want you to share with Southbrook now about crazy. Because anyone who gets involved in kingdom work doesn't know what they're getting into. It's crazy. You've got to be a little crazy to do this. People are not going to be transformed when we care about them. The only time they're going to be transformed by the light and love of Jesus is when we care for them. So my text cared for you. It wasn't like I'm just caring about you. It was like, Charlie, I'm coming alongside you. I'm with you, brother. You are crazy, but you're crazy good. (laughs) And I think anybody who's been a revolutionary and started something that hasn't been done, like the Wright brothers, they were crazy. Thank God they were crazy. We need more crazy, crazy in the good way. And that's what I think you do, is you are listening to the Spirit and saying, what do we need to do to get ahead of this curve so that we can reach people? because they're not going to come to us. We have to go to them, so let's do it. If it looks crazy, I'd rather be on that side of being crazy than lazy. That's what I'm saying. Let's not be apathetic. Let's really try some things. If we mess up, awesome. Let's just do it, because it's it's worth it. The world is dying, and we see over in Germany, 2% of Germans are believers on any level. If we don't, right now, today, have this, like we take it urgently and seriously, we will be there. And so this is the time to be a little crazy. Let's go for it. God bless you, sister. That's City Lights, Southbrook. (laughs) I don't know if you saw the, uh, in Wuhan, China, the, the, with the virus, the hospital that's going to be built in about 10 days. Did you see that? All the earth-moving equipment coming in, and they're going to get this 1,500-bed hospital built in less than two weeks because it is so urgent. And that, with any movement, there is always an element of urgency to it. And I will not apologize for the fact that there is a level of urgency to this. It is not working for scores and scores of people that live very close to you. And so that's why we are going to the links we are to build an infrastructure, and we kind of picture it as a skyscraper of light made up of people to our city. We want you to be a part of that, and Christy explained it so very well. One of the churches that has led us and and, uh, has been a sister church to us and a mentor church to us, when they decided to do a big expansion, it cost $11 million to do it. It costs money to do this kind of stuff. And as you can only imagine, $11 million would be a lot of money, wouldn't it? We estimate, because we're not building buildings to go around the greater Dayton region, the Miami Valley, with, you know, we have people from Tip City here today, we have people from Northridge, people from Wilmington. Uh, To do that, we're going to build it with people, and it's going to cost us about $300,000 in app development, the appointment of the regional pastors, to really get this started. So if God has blessed you, I want you to, to be a part of saying, you know what, I can do this. I can help fund this. It is a building project, but it's made up of people. And 
uh, one of our vision team members, Aaron Matson, calculated that if you and I, if a thousand of us would give $10 extra a week for a year, we'll fund this whole thing. And so I'd love for you to do that. If you have any questions, make sure you go to our information counter about that. But we would love for you to be a part of this. Many of you have heard me tell the story of the French village where the doctor was retiring and they decided to give him a gift of a barrel filled with everyone bringing a flask of wine, putting it into that barrel, and everybody had the same thought. So when the day the doctor came for him to taste from the wine barrel gift, he tasted it and it was all water because everyone said, they really don't need my wine. This is a village and I'll just put water in there. And you're needed. You can look at this and say, this is a big church. If I don't do this, if I don't get participated, there are plenty of people who can pour their wine in the barrel, right? If everybody thinks that way, we will not care for Dayton the capacity that we could. If everyone thinks that way with their $10 that they might be able to do, we won't get this funded the way we need to, to get the app as optimally functioning as we can to appoint the high-capacity people we need to appoint to these positions, and uh, we would we love for you to be a part of that. I need you to do that, Southbrook. And if you're struggling to pay bills, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those of you who say, hey, you know, God's blessed us right now. We can really be on the front ends of this. While we're taking up generosity, think about that as the bags pass. While you're doing that, first training from the Growth Institute is, is ready to be utilized by you. And Randy mentioned this a few weeks ago. The communication course, it's free, it's online, go to growthinstitute.org and you can learn how to be a good talker and a good listener at your own leisure. Now, here's what I want you to do, I want you to do a self-diagnosis if you need this course. Do you know there's a sign, there's a sign that will make it obvious that you need to, to consider taking this course? Here it is, are you breathing? Are you breathing? then you need to think about taking this course because if you want people to think you're wonderful, just be a good listener. And most of us are not as good at it as we think we are. So consider that. You can go to growthinstitute.org, get trained, so that when we start unleashing our influence in our city more, we are good listeners. We listen so people will talk, and we talk in a way that people want to listen when that happens. Also, we have... Singles Comedy Night coming up February 13th in Reverie Reception. And if you're single and you'd love to be part of that event, we'd love for you to be there. And because the same comedians there will be at Couples Comedy and Cupcakes on February 14th here in the building. Get your reservations because those will go quickly. February 8th is Winter Palooza at Dayton Metro for families to participate in all kinds of winter fun. And then next week, we're going to have some winter fun on Super Bowl weekend. Super Bowl weekend, as you know around here, is sort of a midwinter party. And there's going to be a strong element of that next weekend. And we're going to have a bunch of winter games out in the atrium, outside in the courtyard. A great opportunity to invite some friends to experience your church. But in the middle of that weekend, we want you to know it is a PG. The experience we will have in here is a PG weekend. And what that means is, is the content we're going to talk about, you may not want to bring your child into, because Jessica Munoz is going to be with us. Jessica Munoz is the founder and president of Pearl Haven, kind of a playoff of Pearl Harbor in Oahu, Hawaii. And Jessica is a medical health care professional who specializes in trauma and 
Pearl Haven was established to take young women out of sex trafficking and put them into a haven, a place where they could recover from the psychological effects of that reality, the trauma of that reality, and she is an amazing speaker. She has an amazing impact. And you say, why are you doing this on Super Bowl weekend? Many of you know why. It's because in America in 2020, there will not be a higher self-sex trafficking weekend than in Miami, Florida next weekend. That this thing that is sort of our country's holiday is also a manifestation of the sickness that is in our culture. And so we, we really want to give South, uh, Jessica a warm Southbrook welcome as she speaks into us and what we can do. We're here in Dayton. When the sting took place last September in Columbus, Dayton was also implicated in that because we are at that crossroads of I-70 and 75. And so this is a very relevant issue for us to bring light into a major darkness in Dayton. And we would love for you to be here this week, uh, next weekend for that. Enjoy the weekend, but in the middle of it, we're going to have some pretty uh, serious stuff to talk about. How many of you never, ever, ever look at me because you'll look at the screen? I just want you to say, I'm up here. I'm like right here, right now, okay? Because it's a weird feeling when you're talking and no one's looking at you, okay? Uh, but no, I've gotten used to that. But how many of you have ever seen the numbers and the, alphabet, the, the, the letters come up on the screen? Has that happened today? I don't know. It may have happened today. Whenever you see that, what is that signal? Somebody back there has wants that aren't being met, right? <laughs> like there is a need being expressed to where a code is entered, help us, come back and rescue us from your little sinner, please, right? Because we know that's natural, especially with those little gifts from heaven cuddly, we love them so much, wonders of the next generation, infants, right? You know how it works. How many of you ever had an infant moment? Infants don't have the cognitive processes yet to control their wants. So the only thing you know about, there's two things to know about an infant. They have needs that they want met now, right? They want met and they want met now. So it's 2 a.m., and this little guy or girl who is going to pull at your heartstrings, you're going to cry at her first prom, and you're, you know, all these things, has this amazing propensity to take you, mom and dad, at two in the morning, you are dead tired, and when she has a little hunger pang, she does not say to herself, my mom and dad who love me so much are tired and in bed, so I will lie here and coo until the break of dawn, and so that when my mom gets up, my cooing will signal to her, Mom, I want a swig of milk, okay? No, that's not how it goes. How does it go? I have a want, and I want it met now, and I'm going to let that need be known in a way that I don't care if the neighbors hear me. I want that need met now. And we say, okay, that's, that's, real, that's, that's real natural for a baby. That a little child screams bloody murder because they have a need and they want it met now. Or take it this way. What about that same infant is about 10 months old? He or she has learned to crawl. And there's this amazing draw that crawlers have toward electric sockets. Have you ever noticed that? What is, has there ever been a scientific study done 
on an infant's draw to an electric socket. And they're crawling over. You see as the dad who will always be the hero, you, you, you intervene. There's this want to stick your finger into something that you should know. You're going to get a lobotomy if you do that, honey. But, but you're going to do it. Even though your finger doesn't fit in there, you want to stick your finger in there and dad rescues you. And that little infant, 10-month crawler, doesn't look up and say, Dad, thanks for being there for me. Thanks for rescuing me from self-destruction. No, no, no. You just had the unmitigated gall to intercept the fulfillment of a want. And so what does that, that little guy or gal do? Here's what they do. In a little while, it's going to be 2 a.m. And I'm going to be hungry. And then it's going to be 4 a.m. And I'm going to be hungry again. And then come morning, I will have filled this diaper with a load that will have you begging for mercy, pal. Right? Well, all because... All because of, I have a want, I want it met now. Because that's what immature, undeveloped infants do. They don't have the cognitive processes to understand how the lack of the fulfillment of their wants affect their behavior. If you understand that illustration, and some of you who are already nodding off because you were up all night, all too well understand that illustration, then you understand why we have the letter called 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Because it is a letter written to immaturity. It is. The whole thing is a problem diagnostics document. And the Apostle Paul says, all of you who came to Christ out of Corinth, remember what I said last week, Corinth, if you want to combine New York City and Las Vegas and Los Angeles into one, that's what you get with Corinth. Prosperous and corrupt. Worshipping idols that usually had to do with prostitution and pedophilia. Um, in a culture where patronage was a huge deal. You got up in culture because you paid people to be your patron who, who you were paying as bribes. It was built on bribes. The whole culture was built on bribes. And in this culture, you're trying to form this community of Christ. Imagine that. And what Paul writes is he says, hey, listen, gang, i got to tell you, I know the last letter I wrote to you, this is actually 2 Corinthians because there's a first letter that we don't have. He said, my last letter, I know I was harsh because you're not as far along as you think you are. And Southbrook, in as loving a way as I can tell you today, what I would ask you to do is assume you're not as mature as you think you are for the next 25 minutes. Make the assumption that there are levels of insecurity in you that sometimes make you act like an ill-formed infant, if the truth were known. Because if I could tell you, from my experience, both biblically and in life, the one factor that makes a difference, especially in all human relationships, is the maturity of security. And when you get a group of people together and they're secure in their own identities, watch out. Watch what happens when a group of people are not trying to prove something to themselves or to other people. But when you get a group of people together and they're still trying to flesh out their own self-worth, their own to validate their own security, look out. 
because bad things are going to happen. Uh, many of you know this is close to my heart. For example, this afternoon, somewhere in Dayton, there will be a fifth grade basketball game, and the future of the universe depends on the outcome of that basketball game. It is that important, right? And not only will you have people on opposite sides of the teams yelling at each other and yelling at those evil refs who are clearly biased against our community, because it's not just our team, it's our whole community they are biased against. They just don't like people from our community. Not only will you have that divisiveness, what you will also have is you will have people on the same team who are rooting against other children on that team because their child has the unmitigated gall to interrupt my child's playing time. Has anybody ever seen this happen? Yeah, you see it all the time. And you know why that is? Because my security depends on my child's ability to play basketball in the fifth grade. And that's the brutal honesty. We're looking at our children to fulfill our insecurities. Our unrecognized, unrealized potential. It's, I mean, I could tell you, you look at every relational conflict in your life and you can almost always bring it back to somebody, if not somebody's, were insecure. How many times have you picked a fight with your spouse just because you were just insecure and you just picked a fight? You ever done that? Sherry does it to me all the time. <clears throat> yeah, you do that. You just know, you know. I'll just, I'll be straight with you. This, this is so real. I'm going to give you an insight. Take your 35-year-old guy whose security depends upon his masculinity and now he's got to start taking Viagra because his masculinity is in question. He starts making dumb decisions that ruin his family because he's insecure about his value as a man. You think, friends, that insecurity doesn't cause some problems? Because you can trace the bad decisions people make with disrupting their family back to insecurity. So when we get into the subject matter, we're delving deeply into what makes families and organizations and groups and teams and churches function. It's what Maslow called people who were self-actualized. It's what, it's what the New Testament calls maturity. It is what is all throughout the Bible. If you ask me what's one word that represents what is all throughout the Bible, it is the word security. What's one word that represents what is all throughout Jesus' mantra of what it means to live as a follower of his, the Sermon on the Mount? It is security. That is the leather thread that runs through the fabric of the whole Bible. It's, you know the phrase. You know what? The whole Bible can be summarized, I believe, in this phrase from a psalm you know. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm secure. Look at these words. 1 Corinthians is where we are. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought i mean we look at that and go that is not possible i was obviously before democrats and republicans were on the planet right there there's no way that's going to happen Right? I don't have to go into the divisiveness of our culture right now along lines that are political. Just taking that alone 
And, and you have people who are Christ followers who say, I, by definition, I am of a kingdom that is not of this world. I am of a kingdom that's trying to invade earth. And we get divided by political system perspectives that both, from a kingdom standpoint, both are inadequate. Both are. I know that's a shock, but both fail to fully represent the kingdom from above. And Paul would say to us, as Southbrookers, he would say, listen, what's, what's creating division among Christ followers along political lines? Well, I would say to you, it's insecurity. Because both political systems are built upon insecurity. They use insecurity to leverage power. And that's not the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ uses love to leverage serving power. It's a different kingdom, isn't it, friends? And so Paul says, how's that going to happen? Look how this is going to happen. He says in verse 11, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, which is really cool. For those of you who don't know this, there were women leaders in the first church. And that's evidence right there just on that statement alone. He mentions Chloe's household. She leads a house church. Have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. One of the evidences that your faith is less than mature is if you, if you say, you know what? I only come to Southbrook when one particular person is speaking. That's the evidence of an immature faith. If, you, if by chance there might be one or two of you who say, I only come to Southbrook when I know Charlie's speaking, your faith is very uncertain because you're building your faith on someone who will let you down. Trust me, those who know me well know this. They learned this a long time ago. I will let you down. If you're building your faith on someone other than Christ, that is a shaky deal, friend. That is a shaky deal. It's a sign of immature faith. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Actually, this is an insight into how important baptism was as the first thing someone did when they accepted faith. But Paul says, that wasn't my role. No one can say that you were baptized in my name, though. And I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to pronounce, to preach the message of Christ, the gospel. Not with wisdom or eloquence. That's not what I'm depending on. I'm depending upon the cross of Christ. He said, I don't want to do anything that empties the cross of Christ of its power. Now, I want you to notice that last verse. Because there are two types of people in this room today. There's that person who's still trying to form your security out of what you've learned, accomplished, your academics, your, your, what you drive, what you, uh, what you live in, what, how you dress. You're, you're trying to form security around your political identification, whatever it is. And there are those of you who have grown now to where you realize my identity, my security is in the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That the cross of Christ says it was God's statement that he loves me and we could beat and torture him and he will not stop loving me. And that cross says 
He died in my place. My sins are forgiven. My present is empowered. And my future is secure. There's nothing in the world that will take the place of that giving you security as an individual. Because as you know, a house can burn down. An economy can fail. The wrong person can get elected. And all of a sudden, your security is gone. Or your Paul, your Cephas, your Charlie will let you down. (laughs) Because that will inevitably happen. And Paul says, you know what? He says, Corinthians, your tuning fork. What Levi was talking about earlier, what he was saying, when you have those hundred pianos and they've never played together, but they're in tune because they've been tuned by the same tuning fork. He says, listen to me, the basis for your unity is not you all have the same hair color or you have the same political dependency. The basis for unity is we're all tuned to the humility of the cross. We do not empty the cross of its power. I love to preach in a way that helps people. This isn't self-help, friends. I hope I help you. I want to help you. Jesus helped people. But my first mission is to get you tuning your life around the stunning claims of a crucified carpenter on a garbage dump outside Jerusalem for six hours 2,000 years ago. That that is your point of reference for security as a human being. And from there, all things grow. And you and I have a decision to make because every single dysfunction, in my view, that happens relationally in groups, in teams, comes out of insecurity, and the security necessary, Christ is waiting to provide He's waiting to provide that to you. One of the things we've done as an organization since April, as I mentioned to you a few weekends ago, is we are slowly walking through Patrick Lencioni's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And in that book, he, he writes these words, a friend of mine, the founder of a company that grew to a billion dollars in annual revenue, best expressed the power of teamwork When he once told me, if you could get all the people in an organization rowing in the same direction, you could dominate any industry in any market against any competition at any time. And he's right. These are the reasons why Paul said, you must be of one heart. You must be tuned in your connection to Christ. Why? Because it is an urgent reality that we get the message, the light of Christ out to this dying world. And he says, if I can get you to tune yourselves around one reality, and that is the humility of the cross, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, male nor female, Republican nor Democrat at the foot of the cross. It is level ground. And we tune ourselves to that. Look out. That's why our mission, say it with me, our mission is to connect People to Christ, not religion. You know what religion does? Religion just makes people more insecure. Are we doing enough to measure up? You know, that show the good place. Hopefully when you get to that place, the good things you did outweigh the bad things you did. A lot of you still think that way. I'm sorry, you'll never do enough to outweigh the bad things you've done. You never will. It is only by the cross of Christ that humanity has a hope of being reconciled to God. So what's it going to be? Religion, if you want religion, great. 
You'll never know (laughs) if you've done enough. But you can connect to Christ and he says, hey, listen, listen, listen. I've done it for you. Life is not spelled D-O-N-E, what you've done. Life is spelled what I do and have done to get to you. One of the things we've done, look at this, look at this one issue. Look at how Christ affects this. Patrick Lencioni, as many of you know, in his development of the five dysfunctions of a team, he developed this pyramid that every dysfunctioning team starts with the absence of trust. By the way, this is the Cleveland Browns right here. Right here, it is. I'm not kidding you. This is the Cleveland Browns. I'm, this is bowing pray right now for... But I mean, it it is unbelievable. When you don't have trust, then you're never going to get to where you can, in a healthy way, rumble, as Brene Brown calls it, can, you know, talk. And and so we fear conflict. We walk on eggshells. There's pseudo community going on. So we never get buy-in. We never get a commitment. And so we avoid accountability as a result of that because we don't know what we're holding people accountable to because we really don't know what we're trying to achieve. And so, uh, as of course, we just kind of exist to move the garbage from one end of the compound to the other. We never really get results. Anybody work for a place like that? Instead, what happens when, for example, what Patrick Lencioni says is, Everything starts with trust. And this was a real, real big deal for us as our leadership team has gotten healthier. Look at these words. Trust is not predictability. Trust is vulnerability. See, we often think that trust is, well, I've known George for 10 years. I know what he's going to do. I trust him. That's not trust. Trust is when I will share information with you about me that you could use against me. Now you've got trust. Now you are going somewhere. Every once in a while we do this, and this is just an exercise. We haven't done it in a long time. It's been too long since we've done this. But it's an exercise to just remind you that you are entering in a journey that hopefully leads to the security of vulnerability, that you find your people. So let's just do this mass confession. You're in church, okay? If you have ever failed a test, ever been cut from a team, failed an audition, you've ever been fired from a job or didn't get a promotion that you wanted, if you've ever blown an assignment, missed a crucial play at the end of the game, if you've ever said the wrong thing at the wrong time, ate with the wrong fork, if you've ever had moral, athletic, academic, social, financial, vocational, relational failure of any kind, would you raise your hand right now? All right, now look around you. Look around you. Look at the person to your left and right and say, welcome to the failure club, okay? Because that's what you're a part of. So does the world need another place where we don't trust each other because we can't be vulnerable with with the people that we have in our lives at a personal and intimate level? No, nobody needs another place where you have to fake it and cover up your insecurities. Nobody needs that. Everybody needs a place where they can begin building authentically trusting teams. I mean, we all long for this. How many of you have never really failed, but the person next to you looks like they really needed to do that confession? Anybody? I mean, we, 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 we know this. Look at the triangle again. Look at this pyramid again. We know this to be true, that once you have, have you ever been a part of a team, and a, a little team ranked seventh in the country right now is, watch them. 
because their superstar is not trying to prove anything to anyone. Anybody heard of the University of Dayton Flyers? Right? Yeah. There's this unbelievable, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. They're going to go places. You know why? Because it's led by people who are secure. I don't think Obi Toppin has anything to prove right now. And when you see this in teams, you see this dynamic where there is security. There is a maturity that leads to potential. Where Patrick Lencioni says, that team can dominate just about any market. That team, Jesus said, I will build my movement tuned to me and the gates of Hades will not stand up against it. It will dominate evil. I believe that. Now, if you can't go there, I just I want you to know, if you're too insecure and you'll never go there, where you never be in community in a way that you're not trying to compensate for your inadequacies, you're always trying to CYA, ask someone what that means, but you know what that means, and you're always doing that, You'll never experience life. You'll never experience what it is to be a part of a team because you're that family, you're that person, you're that coach, you're that individual who's always trying to prove something. And your mantra should be, eagles may soar, but weasels don't get sucked into jet engines either. I'm staying on the ground where it's safe, man. And you never experience life. You never experience life. I, I, I think there are just times where we have to ask ourselves the question, what do I really, really want to be? Because at the end of the day, mature people are not infants. They have the cognitive development to manage their wants for the good of the team. That's what mature people do. Insecurity is immaturity. But maturity is when I, like Paul said in Romans 12, I'm not conformed to the pattern of this world anymore. We're not like the other families at youth basketball that have to have their kid be first all the time. No, we're not like that. We've been transformed by the renewing of our mind, and we can process cognitively that our true wants have been met. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. I think the best the best description I have ever read, I was thinking about this this week, the best description I've ever read of maturity is, it's kind of lengthy, but listen to this description from David Brooks. He's a Yale professor, uh, a writer for the New York Times, and he wrote a book called The Road to Character. And uh, you talk about a person, like, this is what we want to be. Occasionally, even today, you come across certain people who seem to him have an impressive inner cohesion. Isn't that a great picture? They possess an impressive inner cohesion. They're not leading fragmented, scattershot lives. They have achieved inner integration. They're calm, settled, rooted. They're not blown off course by storms. They don't crumble in adversity. Their minds are consistent and their hearts are dependable. Their virtues are not the blooming virtues you see in smart college students. No, they are the ripening virtues you see in people who have lived a little and have learned joy and pain. 
Sometimes you don't even notice these people because while they seem kind and cheerful, they're also reserved. They possess the self-effacing virtues of people who are inclined to be useful but don't need to prove anything to the world. Humility, restraint, reticence, temperance, respect, and a soft self-discipline. They radiate a sort of moral joy. They answer softly when challenged harshly. They are dignified when others try to humiliate them, restrained when others try to provoke them. But they get things done. They perform acts of sacrificial service with the same everyday modest spirit that they would display if they were just getting the groceries. They're not thinking about what impressive work they're doing. They're not thinking about themselves at all. They just seem delighted by the flawed people around them. Isn't that a great phrase? They j- you needed that, maybe. They are delighted by the flawed people around them. They just recognize what needs doing, and they do it. They make you feel funnier and smarter when you speak with them. They move through different social classes, not even aware, it seems, that they are doing so. And after you've known them for a while, it occurs to you that you've never heard them boast. You've never seen them self-righteous or doggedly certain. They aren't dropping little hints of their own distinctiveness and accomplishments. They have not led lives of conflict-free tranquility, but have struggled toward maturity. They have gone some way toward solving life's essential problem, which is that, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either. The line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. These are the people who have built a strong inner character, who have achieved a certain depth. And these people, at the end of this struggle, the climb to success has surrendered to the significance of deepening the soul. After a life of seeking balance, the surrender of humility has happened. And these are the people we're looking for. I ask you, is not that the person you want to be? Is that not Southbrook who we want to be? It is. And if you will say with the writer, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. If were the whole range of nature mine, that would be a present none too small because love so amazing, so divine, demands, demands my soul, my life, my all, that if you will cling to nothing for your security, but the statement of the cross, and if you will not empty it of its power, someday you will be that person. Because he who started a good work in you has promised he will finish it until the day of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. This is who we want to be, Father. And we are just gripping that blood-stained cross as the echoing statement through the millennium that this is how God loves us. Then may we be redesigned and redefined by that love. 
that says our past is cleansed, our present is empowered, our future is secure in the love of Christ. And if God be for us, who could be against us? If he is our shepherd, we shall not want. And from that point is where we live. From the point of the bread and the wine is where we live. What it says about humanity, that God so loved us that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him need not be insecure. But they will have the stuff of life that lasts forever. And everyone who believes this, everyone who wants this with every fiber of their being, with me and in Christ, said, Amen. See you next week, everybody, for Super Bowl weekend. Amen.